Go ahead and grab a Bible. If you don't have one, we got a tub up here that's higher than the normal elevation, so you might have to reach, or if you're short, get taller. And we're going to be in Acts chapter 24 this morning. Acts chapter 24 is where we're going to be. All right, uh, a couple quick announcements. The bathroom situation, we got the kids in the middle. Uh, so you, to go to the bathrooms, you got to come through and go out that door over there. So, yeah. Uh, and if you got to walk in the front, that's fine because I'm super tall right now, high and lifted up like Jesus should be, but apparently I am today. So, nobody will, it's not a big deal. And then, um, really important, next week we are not in the building and it's not, we're not here, we're in the park. If you try to come here, you're going to be with a whole bunch of other people at Bloomsday, right? So, we are doing 6 p.m. on Saturday. Wrap your mind around that. 6 p.m. the night before Bloomsday, Manitou Park, our usual spot at the North Shelter, right there down at the bottom by the playground. And uh, 6 p.m., that's when our church service is next week. Make sense? Okay. And then out front, the excessive goodies that we have is a really exciting thing. We have a women's retreat coming up this fall, and so they are raising money for the women's retreat. Okay, so that's what the bake sale is about. And they probably put prices on things, which is very kind of them, but they would not be sad if you dropped $20 on a single brownie or something like that, right? So uh, let's send as many women as we can to the women's retreat. Uh, and men, if that means you need to like hire babysitters or sign your wife up and tell her you're going, then let's do that because uh, that is a fruitful time for the ladies. All right, I think that's what we got. Acts chapter 24, we've been following the birth of the community of Jesus followers uh, since the beginning of the book of Acts, right? So this is the documentary kind of, of how uh, the Jesus following community started with Jesus, died on the cross, resurrected, and then it begins to spread. It spreads through the Middle East, then into Europe, right? And we are part of this lineage that has lasted for the last over 2,000 years uh, that started in the book of Acts. So we've had 23 chapters so far of this like progression of the church spreading and growing. And, uh, and it brought me to this question that I think about lots of times. As we ended chapter 23 last week, the Apostle Paul, right, was in prison, uh, arrested in custody, let's say, uh, under Roman rule uh, for a crime he did not commit. And here's what I want us to think about. If the Apostle Paul lived in 2022, what would his life look like? I mean, think about like some credentials real quick for the Apostle Paul. He's one of the key leaders of the fastest growing organization in the world at the time. He's highly educated, doctorate degrees, you know, all the school you could go through, highly ranking political official and religious official at the time of him leaving the Jewish faith. Uh, now he's written uh, the most read book in the history of the world. <laughs> Like, co-authored? You think he's got a podcast, probably? Probably does some, you know, Google TED Talks, whatever they do, right? Shows up at Facebook headquarters to encourage the staff. And, and yet, that's not where we find the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is in prison at this time. Not only in prison, but he's in prison and nobody knows he's there. And... and and that's a complete, like, separation. Sometimes I wonder, I was like, what are we doing as the church in 2022? Our leaders have podcasts. And, and, and you think of the Apostle Paul, if he lived now, 
Like, I looked it up just to give a point of reference. J.K. Rowling, who's sold about 400 million books, is a billionaire at this point in time. The Apostle Paul co-authored the New Testament. He wrote about two-thirds of it. Five billion copies have been printed. That's about 20 times more than J.K. Rowling's. Do you think he's probably a millionaire at this point? A billionaire in 2022? Do you think he's probably like an influencer, whatever the heck that means? You think he has a crowd? And, and the Apostle Paul's in prison, and, and nobody knows he's there. It's, it's always kind of bothered me when I see that contrast between how our Christian religious leaders today are perceived and live and how the Apostle Paul was perceived and lived. Because um, I remember being in the Bible college, and I was not the Bible college. Like there's, That made it sound like a cult, right? <laughs> like, we all got... Like, I went to Bible college, and I was in Bible college, and um, when I was there, I was studying, and there's a book in your Bible called Job, and the story of Job is interesting because God is having this conversation with Satan about this man named Job, and God is very pleased with this man named Job, and God is standing up for it. He's like, look at Job, man. He loves me. Like, he honors me, and Satan's like, I bet I can get him to not honor you, and so the whole story goes through. If you want to read it in your Bible, it's very interesting, but at one point in the story, Job is homeless dirty, covered in soot and ashes on the side of the road and covered in sores. And he still honors God with his life. God is not upset with Job. God is not mad at Job. God is very pleased with Job. And I thought, I've always thought of that ever since my Bible college days. I was like, is it possible for some of the most pleasing people to God on the planet to be on the side of the road homeless? Are you kidding me? Like, we would be walking by these people on our, and we were like, you know what? Like, I don't know what you did in life, but you're probably not exactly in line with what God's plan for your existence is, right? That's kind of how we treat it. We walk by these people, and maybe they had a bad business deal. Maybe they're not financially wealthy. Maybe they're not living a comfortable life. Maybe they're homeless. Maybe they're at their Hope House. Maybe they're Catholic Charities. Maybe, I don't know where they're at. And and you kind of get this feeling like, yeah, God probably wants a little more for your life than that. And yet... Job was one of those guys, and God's like, no, no, no. I'm very pleased with what's happening in that man's life right now. And I think the Apostle Paul is in the same area right now, right? He is in prison. Nobody knows he's there. He's there on unjust cause, but we would kind of like, oh, man. And, and here's what, I, like, he's absolutely alone in prison. And there's actually a pattern that happens in your Bible Over and over and over, we see this again, right? Not just in the book of Job, right? The Bible makes a pattern of it. Moses murders somebody, runs away to the desert where he's by himself and nobody knows who he is for 40 years. Then King David lives in caves in the wilderness like a homeless guy for almost a decade, right? Then the apostle Peter, the apostle Peter watches Jesus get crucified on the cross. And then he's like, you know what? I'm going to take a job out in the middle of nowhere catching fish, Right? And nobody knows he's out there. And then Jesus resurrects. And then Jesus is like, hey, you're going to come back? And Peter's on a boat like, oh, I was kind of hoping to just do this thing. John the Baptist was out in the middle of the woods. Everybody thought he was a nutcase because he was wearing animal hair and leather belts and eating crickets. And over and over and over again, we see these godly people. And by the way, Jesus said John the Baptist was the greatest person that ever lived, never did a miracle. None 
born of a woman is greater than John the Baptist. All the time we see these people that are well-pleasing to God and really struggling. Not successful like we would equate it in 2022 in America. Not comfortable like we would expect them to be. Not even free or like their life being a functional member of society like we would expect. All that to say, there's a real possibility that there's people with whom God is very pleased with who are not successful, wealthy, comfortable, in a good spot, maybe not even productive members of society. What if the most pleasing person to God in this city this morning was a homeless person? And some of you are like, mm, I don't think it's, it probably can't. I'm not telling you to do what you think it could. I'm not telling you what could you feel. I'm talking about what does the scripture say? When we come to Acts chapter 24, the apostle Paul is He's at the lowest of the low, right? He's in prison. And in my mind, it's very possible that the most God-honoring person in the entire land of Israel at, the, at this point in time is the Apostle Paul. And he's written the book of Romans at this point in time in his life. Do you realize that? The book of Romans, like one of the most influential literary works, hands down in the history of the world. And this guy's in prison with nobody. So that's where we pick it up. Paul's all alone in Caesarea. He's about to stand trial for these false accusations before a Roman governor in the territory. Nobody knows he's there, and that's where we are. Chapter 24, verse 1. Here we go. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullius, and they laid before the governor their case against Paul. Okay, so the governor sends for those who are accusing Paul, which are members of the religious elite uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, they come up to Caesarea, which is kind of the Roman political uh, head of the area. The Jewish political and religious uh, center of the area was Jerusalem. So they had to make the travel uh, to the Roman governor's headquarters. And when they show up, not only do they have the high priest, which is the highest ranking political and religious official in the entire country at the time, but they have hired this man named Tertullius, who is a spokesman. So they've paid, you think like the most highly ranked political and religious official in all the land hired some chump to be his spokesman? No, this is like hiring the best. This is like the Johnny Cochran guy, right? This is, he's like top of the top lawyer. You guys are too young to know who Johnny Cochran is, but there's some old people who are like, oh yeah, that guy, right? This is like, if you could just pay for good representation, this is what's happening here. And Paul looks at his and he's got nobody. Imagine you're sitting there about to go on trial for something you know you didn't do, and you walk into the courtroom, and across the way, they got the highest-priced lawyers that you could ever think of, the most powerful political and religious official that you could ever think of, his posse, and on your side, it's just you. So what do you do when the thing you're facing is bigger than your resources? What do you do in life when you come face to face with a circumstance that you know you can't overcome, when you look at their side and you look at your side and every time you do the math, you come up on the losing end. Paul's got no representation, not even some public defender. He's standing there by himself and the most powerful man in the country has just brought the best lawyer he could afford to crush him. You think if, let's go back to 2022 again. You think if Billy Graham... When he was alive, got thrown into prison, we wouldn't figure out how to get him some representation. 
You don't think Kanye West and the Chick-fil-A guy and Duck Dynasty would throw some money in a hat and get him a good lawyer? If we pass the hat for the Billy Graham Defense Fund here, we get some money? That's not what Paul gets. He's by himself. So back to the question, what do you do when the opposition is just too great and the struggle lasts longer than you thought it would and the pain is deeper than you expected it to be and the fear is inescapable and the discomfort is unrelenting. There's no end in sight. Paul's sitting there like, there's no way this is going to work out well for me. You know, if you pay attention as you read your Bible, you will see that the Lord is with his people in lots of different ways. Sometimes he's very visible when he's with his people. Sometimes he sends reminders to his people of his presence. Sometimes he's supernaturally natural. He sends natural things to happen on behalf of his people. Sometimes he's present and, so, and the people have no idea, right? Like in the story of Exodus, it says that God was with his people in a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. So it's very visible. They're like, great, he's here. Look at the pillar, cloud, fire, awesome, we got it. Right? But then you keep going in your Bible, and there's a guy named Elijah, and he's out in the desert, and God brings him food every day with a flock of ravens. It says ravens fly by and drop meat every day. Like, that's how God is with Elijah. He's like supernaturally natural. And then you keep going in your Bible, and the people of Israel are about to fight a war, and they're like, God, help us. And the, these prophets are talking, and the, one of them's really scared. And the other prophet's like, God, will you open this man's eyes to see how you're really fighting on behalf? And God opens this man's eyes, and the entire hillside are filled with angels and chariots of fire. He had no idea. God was with him. He was fighting on his behalf, but that guy had, couldn't see it. He didn't realize what was going on. And then you keep going in your Bible, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego get thrown into the fiery furnace, and there's three of them thrown in, and the king looks in, and there's four of them in the fire. You know that story? Where's all my little kids that grew up in church at? Yeah, felt bored, right? So, and we're not even told that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew there was a fourth person in there. Like, I'm pretty convinced that they got out and they were like, yeah, that was cool. And the king was like, where's the fourth guy from? And they're like, fourth guy, right? And so over and over and over again, we see these moments where God is with his people in different ways, sometimes very visible, sometimes very supernaturally natural, sometimes visible only to the people on the outside. Sometimes they couldn't see it at all. Then you, even you get to the book of Esther, God's name isn't mentioned one time in the entire book of Esther, and yet he saves his people from genocide. So all this to say that there's a lot of ways God has been with his people through difficulty. So what happens when the way God chooses to be with you is not the way you want God to be with you. What happens when you're like, hey, God, I'm in a situation and this is difficult and I don't think I'm going to come out on the winning end of it. And I really would like a pillar of fire and cloud right now. And God's like, no, actually, I'm just going to send a raven. Or maybe he's like, I'm going to fight on your behalf and you're never even going to see it. Or maybe there's people on the outside going like, how many people are walking in the fire with you? And you don't even realize what's happening. I hope you're encouraged right now that the presence and provision of God is not dependent on the appearance of a situation or the comfort of a situation. Or even your preference for how God should handle the situation. It's not even dependent on the strength of the opposition right now. Because the opposition to Paul in this legal battle he's about to face is overwhelming. And that has nothing to do with the provision of God. 
God's not up in heaven like, oh man, Tertullian, I didn't know they were going to hire that guy. He's incredible. We're going to lose now, right? God's not worried about this at all. So look at what happens in verse 2. And when, they, when he had been summoned, Tertullius began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace. So this is opening argument here. He's talking to Felix, the governor, right now. So he's laying it on pretty thick, the flattery. Since through you, Felix, we enjoy much peace. And since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you, you but, sorry, that was in English. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything which we accuse you. The Jews also join in the charge, affirming that these things we're so. So they make their opening argument. This is what, he's a plague. He, we saw him, he was about to profane the temple, right? He's stirring up riots, which was kind of a sore spot because the Jews rioted a lot and the Roman governor was in charge of just making them not riot, just keeping them quiet. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. And what's interesting is that for a group of people who are claiming to represent God, remember this is the highest ranking uh, religious official in the nation of Israel at the time. So you would expect that this man is representing God as he speaks. Yet, if you were to take every God-honoring part of his speech away, how much of the speech would be left? All of it. There's not one thing that this man said about God or honoring God or living life in relationship to God. Is it? A classic example of a man who claims to represent God, claims to be on good terms with God, and yet as he speaks, nothing in what he says actually matches up with the life he claims to lead. I don't want to make this a bigger deal than it needs to be, but sometimes there's something to the idea that people who claim to be representing God never talk about God. That should be a red flag. We don't need to be like, you got to say Jesus every other word, or I don't think it's real. Right, okay, I don't got to go that extreme. But if it's never, that's a problem. We talk about politics a lot. We talk about our position on social issues a lot, how we feel about the things going on in our lives and our country a lot. But somehow God-honoring gets left out of the things that we talk about, even for the people who claim to represent God. That's a problem. Look at verse 10. But when the governor nodded for Paul to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disrupting with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they are now bringing up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, so the way is the name for Christianity in first century, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. When I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, though they ought to be here for you now and make an accusation, should they have anything against me, or else these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. 
counsel, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Now, what's different about what comes out of the mouth of Paul? He starts by defending himself from the accusations, but then somehow we get to the idea that Paul worships God. Then he follows the way, which is the way of Jesus. He's a follower of Jesus. Then he lives his life by the word of God. When he talks about the law and prophets, that's the written word of God. Then he takes pains to have a clear conscience and honor God with the way he lives his life. And he believes in the resurrection. Then he says his hope is in God. And he intentionally follows the customs and purification regulations in order to worship God in accordance with what God's word says. Like, if you did the same thing with the Apostle Paul's speech and be like, let's take all the God-honoring speech out of it, three quarters of it's gone. It's like he can't even help himself. Like, he just keeps talking and he's like, well, actually, I believe in the resurrection and I'm a Jesus follower and I trust the word of God. And the guy's like, we're not here about any of that. We're here on a legal matter. Like, what, what about your crime? There's something about the Apostle Paul that just cannot help but speak about the conviction of his heart in the way God has called him to live. I did this thing while I was studying this week where I started running a filter through all of my conversations. Because if I'm going to sit up here and tell it to you guys, then I probably should try and do it sometimes. You know, when pastors stop doing that, they get in trouble. So I started running a filter through my conversations. Like, if I took all of the God-honoring speech out of this part of my life, or this part of my life, or the way I talk to this person, or when I talk to this person, how much would be gone? And, and to be honest with you, I ran into one that was a glaring weakness. I coached track at North Central High School. And if you took all the God-honoring stuff, I mean, it's not like I'm using four-letter words when I'm talking with them or anything, but I just don't talk about Jesus ever. We talk about pole vaulting a lot. And that's a problem. If they never hear me talk about Jesus, I'm not doing it right. And I don't care if they fire me at a public school, right? That's not why I'm doing it. I'm doing it to be a blessing. And, and they should know that. So actually, as I was convicted, as I was reading through this this week, I was like, you know what, Lord? I need to do a better job. I need to do a better job. And I'm telling you this because maybe you guys can pray for me. Keep me accountable, Right? I say it all the time, but Jesus only gave us two things that reveal the condition of our hearts. He only gave us two. Jesus only talked about two things that reveal condition of your hearts. What comes out of your mouth, out of the mouth, the heart speaks, and what you spend your money on. Where your treasure is, that's all he gave. So you'd be like, I love God. Me and God are like this. Be like, what do you say and what do you spend your money on? But Felix, verse 22, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody to have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his knees. And after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about the faith in Jesus Christ. And as he reasoned, verse 25, about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. And at the same time, he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul so that he sent for him often and conversed with him. Verse 27, when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. 
So Paul walks into this situation where he, he's looking at, he's like, I can't win here. There's no, I, there's no way. Like the opposition's too great. The opposition's too strong. God's not with me like I want him to be with me right now. God, I would like you to do, like, let's go back to the days. Remember when we went through Acts chapter 16 and Paul and Silas were singing in the prison and God broke them out of prison. It says there was an earthquake and the prison doors just popped open. Why? Paul's like, where's those days? Like, take me back, man. Like, let's do that again. Like, why can't we just pop this thing open, God? Let's say you came to church this morning. You got something going on in your life and it's got you overwhelmed. You feel like Paul. There's so much working against you. It's not getting better. Every time you do the math in your head, you come out on the losing end. God's not with you like you want him to be with you. He's not present in the way you wish he was present. I have really good news for you this morning. Really good news. Paul prays. And God lets him out of jail and everything's okay. No, that's not actually what happens. Paul prays and God is with him in the jail. I wish that it said... Paul got on his knees and God snapped his fingers and everything turned to gumdrops and lollipops and he floated off in pixie dust for the rest of his days. But that's not what it says. It says God was with him. I feel the need to remind you right now that we worship and follow a crucified Savior. We don't worship and follow a billionaire Savior. We don't worship and follow a very popular savior in terms of world popularity. We don't worship and follow an influencer. The savior we follow doesn't run in really high-ranking political and social circles. He was hung on a cross with nothing to his name. Look at what actually happens in verse 27. When two years had elapsed. Two more years of this, Paul's going to walk through. So not only does it not go away, it drags on for two years. And then look, verse 27, desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So we get to the end of two years and we're not any closer to a solution than we were at the start of chapter 24. So this is a two-year chunk of time, and we get nowhere. I can't go 15 minutes without a situation getting solved, let alone two years. And this is what really probably gets Paul's goat. The whole time, look at verse 26. Felix hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. So the governor is just wanting Paul to pay a bribe, and he'll set him free. And Paul's like, man, this living with integrity thing really sucks sometimes. I can just pay a thing and get out of this? That'd be great. Where's Lydia at from Acts chapter 16? She owned a bunch of property and stuff and like seller of purple. She could pull some strings for me. I can just see like Felix going like, you know, if my wife ended up one of those new Tesla electric chariots, I'd be so happy. I might just set people free. I don't know what I'd do. Be so happy, right? And Paul's sitting there like, "Yeah, man, 
unfortunately, I honor God with my life, and paying bribes is not a way to do it. Paul is probably feeling this annoyance. Like, if I just lived without integrity, I'd be walking free right now. And it's a bit ironic, right? Because the whole reason Paul went to Jerusalem was to drop off a large sum of money from the churches in Greece to the church in Jerusalem. So just probably like a week prior, Paul had had a very large sum of money in his possession, had given it to a church, had been arrested in Jerusalem, taken to Caesarea, and now is encountering a leader that's like, I wish I had a bribe. And Paul's like, last week I had thousands of dollars. Now he's got nothing. So you think God was like surprised by that? God's like, man, Paul, if it just would have happened a little bit different timing, you'd be free right now. No, God's not surprised by any of this. So when I go through this situation, you add it to your life, and you're like, you know what? My situation's harder than I wanted it to be. It's more painful than I thought. God's not with me like I wished he would have been, or like I hoped he had me. Like, and, and it's not getting better. And it's been a long period of time, and we're not any closer now than we were at the beginning. These circumstances are just too ironic to be random. God knows all of this. And he knew all of this before, before Paul started all of his travels. So here's the deal. When we walk through difficulty and we see these types of ironies, they aren't indicators of how close we were to escaping the hardship. They are reminders to us that God knows what we are doing through and in difficulty and is not a surprise to him and that you are where you are and he already promised to be with you in it. Remember, two chapters ago, God stood with Paul in the prison cell and said, hey, I'm going to be with you until we get to Rome. And now it's three years later, probably at the end of this chapter. And Paul's like, he's still here. He still promised to be here. Remember what we talked about last week on Easter Sunday? The end of our trials is not real hope. Like, like you think that me coming up is like, it'll get better, just hold on. Like, that's not real hope. Like, if you're just thinking that hope will come when your circumstances improve, that's not real hope. Especially for you young people, you have this, like, optimistic view of all of your life is in front of you, and you're like, when things just get better, then, then I'll be good, right? And then you get a little older, and you're like, things just don't get better. Like, they actually could get worse, a lot worse, right? So your circumstances and the fixing or the comfort of your circumstances is not where real hope lies. God with us is real hope. God being with us is real hope. No longer separated from God, relationship and experience with the God who made us. Remember what we talked about last week at Easter? Living life, experiencing the reconciled God, even if the trials are really hard, that's where real hope lies. Not the decrease of our difficulty or the increase of our comfort, but the presence of God. Wherever you find yourself this morning, what your soul is thirsty for, whether you know it or not, is communion with God. And our hope is that we can experience that even if the answers to our prayers are no or not yet. Amen? Let's pray. Jake, come on up. We'll finish with the worship song. Father, we're grateful for uh, your word and the encouragement that it is to us, Lord. And I have no doubt that there are folks in this room um, 
who are going through things that need encouraging right now. And I pray that you would be with them in a special way, Lord. Um, things haven't turned out like they had hoped. And, uh, and maybe there's uncertainty in front of them that is hard to live with, Lord. I pray that your spirit would be them, with them in a special way, that you would reveal them, that yourself to them, Lord, in a way that it encourages their heart and maybe doesn't even change their circumstance, Lord. But you being with us is where we set our hope this morning. We're thankful for that promise. It's in your name we pray. Amen.